Hello, Connor. Hey, hello, Tom. Clearly, the need is great. The need has been great for many, many, many months. Attic aficionados, I generated a series of handheld designs. Back when he was recording with me, Brandon generated a handheld design, which was very similar to one of mine. Put them in front of my wife, who does all my graphic art for my podcasts, historically. For a good reason. There's a subtle reason behind this. I dated a graphic artist for a short period of time when I was in university, and she developed the Noble Ape logo. This has been like the bane of my wife's existence. So from that moment on, all my podcasts, all the stuff that I do on a regular basis, aside from a donation of a little bit of artwork from a gentleman who works on The Simpsons of all places. Anyway, so my wife normally does the graphic design stuff. For Attic Aficionado, she never got round to it. So the Attic Aficionado's logo that comes with the podcast is literally me writing Attic Aficionado's with a Sharpie on some broken envelope that someone had sent me something in. Took a photograph of that. That became the podcast logo. Now we move on. My wife is a huge fan, as I am, of your... What do you call them? Are they daily doodles? What would you describe your Facebook posts associated with the various pictures that you draw? Yeah, so they're a daily art practice, uh, and I I started that in earnest right at the beginning of the year. Um, just I had to make something every day. Uh, I was able to do that in January because there was a a challenge called uh, Fun a Day, uh, F U N A D A Y. There's a group that does it every year in Pittsburgh, but there's a national group. The idea is that every day in January. Uh, you have to make one fun thing every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend of mine last year just drew pictures of their dumbass dog mm-hmm. in Sharpie. This year, that same friend cooked a recipe and then drew some of the ingredients or the finished product uh, and a list of what the recipe was. So sort of made an illustrated copy oh, of wonderful. at least the shopping list for the recipe. Yes. And so it was both making a meal every day and documenting that meal artistically. Wonderful. Uh, Lots of cool projects. So I started doing that in January, and then uh, it turned out that doing that and also traveling was a little bit strange. So I ended up saying, well, I was making sketchbook pages or doing other art, uh, but while I'm traveling, it's just going to be these travel photos because like, travel is about input. It's not about output, and Mm -hmm. this is... Though this is the creative act where I'm a sponge and I'm just pulling information in from in my environment as full spectrum and as broadly as I possibly can, it doesn't feel the same as doing a sketchbook page. So it took me a little bit of, of internal work to say like, no, 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 this still counts. This is just this is this is the part where you learn all this stuff before you try to spit all this stuff back out. Mm. So for Attic aficionados in particular. You have some ideas associated with the kind of things that you'd like to produce. What kind of ideas do you have? Ah, so I've been thinking through this all week. Uh, I meant to actually do some drawings, but I was sick uh, from Sunday through about Tuesday, Mm. uh, which was awful. Not sleeping while I was sick was the worst part, and which it was that that was an unusual and frightening aspect of of that. It was mostly just a cold or a flu for three days, but mm-hmm. the part where I, I didn't sleep very much uh, or very regularly during those three days in like a mounting every day was a little a little more not good on the not sleeping. There is something going around that has a distinct, because I see this through my friend's Facebook posts, Des Moines, Iowa seemed to be the epicenter associated with the folks that were posting, but that was very definitely like a sleep deprivation flu. I guess the fever, I mean, I associate flu with delirium, but this was like a high fever, but not a quality of delirium, and people just up at 2 a.m., 4 a.m., posting on Facebook because they just felt absolutely horrible, so... Oh, yeah, you get this very, uh, this fast zombie 28 days later vibe in yourself of just like, oh, where am I, man? I am pretty sick. (laughs) It's the zombie flu. Ladies and gentlemen, the zombie flu. So, but uh, somewhere through this period, you have had some ideas associated with artwork. What, what have those ideas been? Oh yeah, so my 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 flu-addled ideas uh, were uh, mostly involving. There are a whole bunch of different specific subtopics that Attic Aficionados touches on. So, mm-hmm. comics, superheroes, 
Dungeons and Dragons monsters, I guess many different styles or genres of fictional world. And so I'm thinking that this, whatever this artwork is, needs to bring together a number of those disparate sets of kinds of fictional worlds or genres of kinds of fictional things. Uh, And so what I was thinking of, partially because I've been thinking in tiled out grids of art uh, for the last month or so, was the idea of a system of caves or caverns or attics Mm. that are modular and uh, each one of them has a different set of stuff that would be in an attic in it and they're kind of interacting or coming together the way that like a map of an underground dungeon Mm. would you know so Uh, i had a monospaced font idea where every character in attic aficionados represented a different aspect of attic aficionados so obviously it was an action figure there was a miniature there was some kind of cooking there was something associated with books, Dungeons and Dragons books, or what have you. There were a few movie-related things, but they each one was a letter of Attic Aficionados, which thankfully gave enough space for a wide variety of different things to be done. And I had oh, yeah, the aft little... is made out of a, a T-Rex, and it's got yeah. a very small little ligature because exactly. the tiny, tiny arms. So, yeah, there were many, many possibilities through that, and I did various ideas... For my wife and that was the longest stay there was one which both brandon and i came up with associated with actually the nature of like podcasting in attics and like two attics with like i don't know radio waves communicating between them and you know me and one and brandon and the other kind of podcasting in our oh so, i kind of like that and i like the hmm. idea of maybe everyone's flying their own attic around kind of Calvin mm. and Hobbes style. Right. Mm. Um, or whenever, whenever Calvin becomes, uh, the spaceman, do you know what I'm talking about? I'm not a huge Calvin and Hobbes guy. So, I mean, I've read a few cells and the guy has, I have one of the rare documentaries where the guys appeared in it. And I can't remember what the documentary was about, but yeah, so I'm not a huge Calvin and Hobbes guy, but I, I do understand the nature of the kind of magical mystery, aspect to this thing so yeah 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 he he has an entire imaginary world where he just uh he's just flying like a ufo Hmm. blasting the crap out of aliens Hmm. Uh, and they don't always cut back to whatever calvin looks like in real life sometimes it's just this purely secondary imaginary world comic inside Hmm. of the comic yeah i didn't always get along with that comic strip uh but i certainly got along well with 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 the UFO part, but I can imagine people flying attics around and it could be, it could be me and you, and it could be like the audience too. Right. And they're all, yeah. Oh, we're all broadcasting around. Most definitely. So to be continued, to be fermented, to be assembled. And I've had an interesting love, hate, mainly hate relationship with cafe press for the past 10 years. And now it's so difficult for me to actually order stuff through cafe press that, I think I need to find an alternative swag store when we finally have the graphics and stuff together. But we will create a swag store. We'll put things together. We'll work it out. We might even have contests with prizes. We we could do this in many different extremes. But just to have a dedicated artist on the show is well worth whatever you generate. And I have a bunch of projects, actually, that need, like, an in-house artist as well. I joke with my wife periodically that maybe she would fill this role a topic that we had down that I wanted to dig into a little bit deeper because it's difficult to, for people to intelligibly... I mean, I guess Attic Aficionados in general has been about obsessive hobbies. And when you talk to people, um, Aaron, who I met, who was Brandon's friend, he collects Star Wars figures and a variety of other things as well. But the level of detail and the obsessive aspect to it... but. The difficulty is always, why are people interested in these things? And certainly with miniatures, I've gone back and thought about this quite a bit. For me, it was age... After my parents got divorced, so probably 11 through to mm, maybe 17, say. Sitting in my friend's room, which was called loosely the Embassy of Ferility, and uh, flicking through old White Dwarf magazines, just looking at countless miniatures a wide variety of different kind of chaotic and orcs and just different figures getting a sense of 
I don't know, the deep kind of artistic thing, but also the fact that it was difficult to get my hands on them in Australia. The scarcity and these kind of things was a big part of it. And then, of course, there's a bunch of like religious iconography and a bunch of other things. I mean, certainly amongst, you know, Buddhists, but even amongst Catholics and high evangelicals, they will tend to have like religious artifacts that are the same size as miniatures, which is what I really find fascinating. And the Buddhists in particular, but if you deal with like Catholic priests and these kind of folk, they have a wide variety of like religious artifacts that are the same size as a miniature. And I think there's something about the size and the level of detail and these kind of things that certain humans are receptive to. What makes miniatures important for you? Why why were miniatures so important to you? I mean, you've talked about your your miniature collection, but how did they make sense to you as you started collecting them? I really dig the curio cabinet angle to them. Mm. That they're uh, they're tiny, precious objects that have a level of detail and refinement to them that you don't find in normal objects, but you do find in objects that have either deep artistic value or deep spiritual value or, mm. or both. Or you also find um, thing, find them in, in pine cones and gems and uh, n- natural artifacts that produce spectacular features within themselves. And I, I think that that impulse... I'm just thinking about my childhood bedroom, and I had shelves, and one of the shelves had a backlight, actually, that could could be turned on because it was meant to be a display shelf, and there was a sort of a dresser below it, and then this was the, the top two uh, shelves above the dresser, which I guess were meant to be display shelves, uh, and so I had a little curio cabinet there, uh, and so... Uh, you you have to fill it with small stuff. Certainly, certainly. As a child, I had a few points, like I had a toe removed when I was about 10. And I remember after, probably after having the pin that pinned in the toe, the other toe, because I had to break and straighten the other toe to fill the void where the one toe had been removed. I remember going and purchasing a miniature at that time, sitting in the car, holding a miniature. These kind of things in my life associated with pain and just enduring things occasionally, you know, would be rewarded with these tiny miniatures. And I had a collection that was so small, it was almost embarrassingly pathetic. When I got to the age of about 11 through to, well, probably 12, 13, I started mowing lawns and I had a bit of money and I bought a an army of space dwarves, which was going remarkably cheap because... Strangely, the Space Dwarves never won, and always, as these things go, the Space Dwarves were actually extracted from the Warhammer 40,000 universe. They were called Squats, ladies and gentlemen. This army was relatively valueless, uh, but for me, it was the first incarnation of actually having enough of these things that I could play a game with them, and that made it something what more interesting. Now, historically, I had a few character figures things like that, some old orcs and these kind of things, but none of them were the same kind of miniatures that I collect. I have actually bought the casting, what they call the moulds, that these miniatures were cast with. So I have created some replicas of the early miniatures that I owned. But a lot of my collecting is trying to find some of the really early miniatures, and I've been able to successfully find them, that were advertised in magazines, very much the kind of pulp fiction newspaper-esque most of the magazines no longer exist physically you can't even buy them on the second-hand market which is very curious but the miniatures that came from these are all pretty rough and ready they're not of a aesthetic value that games workshop was able to capitalize on in the late 80s but at the same point i am very particular i in the kickstarters that i back i try to back metal miniature only kickstarters they're actually physically cast miniatures I recently backed a Kickstarter that sent me plastic miniatures, and I thought, ah, I don't know what I'm going to do with these. I'd feel dirty even owning them. Couldn't give them to any friend's kids. I mean, ah, what do I do with these things? Whereas you very much embrace plastic miniatures as being miniatures as well. What what breakdown are your miniatures in terms of metal versus plastic? Uh, my miniature breakdown is, uh, I think, actually based on chronology like when i bought them so the older ones are metal and the newer ones are plastic because Mm. at some point i just completely switched over to plastic Mm. i appreciate the weight of metal miniatures but i really appreciate the 
uh, economy of plastic mm-hmm. miniatures and also knowing that if more plastic miniatures if my dollars are going towards plastic miniatures that's a vote towards making plastic miniatures better cheaper easier mm. uh, and i think that that is coming and i think that that technology when it gets there when when it's really easy to have for for almost any kid in the world to ask the 3d printer that's in their house to kick out a bunch of little plastic miniatures that's when miniatures games are really going to take off right when they're sure. when, when when printing a, a an inch by inch by inch plastic thing is essentially free like that's when this hobby is really going to explode so uh it, plastic's the way to go for that yeah i think certainly my perspective is i'm a dinosaur and i'm perfectly happy being a dinosaur of this light i've recently returned to getting miniatures painted professionally although actually in in a box literally i'm tapping it currently i have a bust that was painted by one of the people that i'm commissioning but i haven't actually received back any miniatures that i've sent people yet that have been painted that is for me something which comes through this podcast actually doing attic aficionados season one got me back in my attic got me bringing down the miniatures and of the I have 883 painted miniatures that I catalogued while I was in the UK. Of that, about 12 of them are painted by people... Actually, that's not true. Well, let's talk about the 12 of them. My main miniature painter was a gentleman by the name of Fred Reed, or Justin Reed, who no longer paints miniatures. He is a fascinating fellow. He was in the military in the UK. He worked in Yugoslavia. He refers to himself as a skull counter in Yugoslavia. And then he retired from the military and went to work for the Games Workshop. He was a regional manager and then became quite senior in the Games Workshop hierarchy and retired and started painting miniatures. And I started commissioning painting from him from about, I think, 2002 or 2003. And he painted a vast majority of my 800. In fact, um, almost all of them. The ones that aren't painted by him, I got a couple of students to paint some and commissioned a bunch of stuff. But the small number that I have are from this gentleman called Kirill Kenev, who is now just retiring from painting miniatures. Uh, a woman called Tammy Hayes, who worked for Games Workshop for many years and now work, or has worked for Doctor Who. I'm not sure what she's doing currently. A fellow called Chris Blair, who was a Slayer Sword winner, as Kirill Kenev is, which is like the pinnacle of of miniature painting. Chris Blair is a British guy. He's a detective, actually, in Reading, of all places. And he's a listener, I think, to Attic Aficionados, moreover. So, Chris, if you're listening, hello. He's also, he does radio in his spare time. Chris Blair is the archetype, as is Carol Kenev, and to a lesser extent, Tammy Hay, of the polymath miniature painter, the person that just has such a breadth of knowledge in a variety of different areas, and this is just like a hobby for them, which they get paid to do. But these artists create things which I think are universally stunning. I think pretty well anyone who has never seen miniatures before will look at their work and think, this is pretty good. Like, this is something of some degree of value. Fred Reed has that as well in spades, but he's just a different kind of painter. So I'm now going back through Attic Aficionados, through recording this podcast season one, and at the end of the podcast when I opened up and looked at my Kirill Kenner miniatures which I haven't looked at for many years, I realised this is actually something that I like. I like getting these artists to paint a small number of these things to a level of respect. Ultimately, I think it's about respect. One of the things I did while I was working with Fred Reed in the UK, I worked for a printer company, I printed out some of his painted miniatures on posters and sent them to Games Workshop and said, the Games Workshop the month prior had put in some poorly painted 1980s miniatures as a joke well it wasn't really a joke because i was saying these were the first miniatures i painted and they looked like this and then i painted miniatures and they looked like this and that for me was deeply offensive because these early miniatures for me i think deserve a lot of respect so i printed up on poster size paint paper fred reed's blown up miniatures to show the level of detail that fred reed was putting in and they then printed it in the magazine so actually i've had a few letters published in white dwarf the games workshop publication but this was my first and put me out as a nut for all to mock, which is the way I like to be treated and these kind of things. So miniature painting for me is 
more associated with respecting these old things, which are now, I was going through some blisters as well. Lead rots. It literally rots. It oxidizes in the air and it becomes like coal, like burnt coal. If it's left for long periods of time, the lead that was used in creating miniatures in the 1980s and early 1990s before they moved to pewter oxidizes over time. So if you leave a miniature of this era unpainted, it will become like a lump of coal over a period of time. And just the nature of the casting and recasting and the reuse of the metal and the rough nature of the lead will create this rotting. So these miniatures have to be painted, otherwise they'll just deteriorate and disintegrate. When I started looking at miniatures in the last decade, I would go into game stores in Vegas that had had miniatures in heat and light for a decade, and they were starting to show this rot, even though they were pewter miniatures. So you do get deterioration in all kinds of metal miniatures. The only way to beat this is to paint them. And so for me, now it's an existential respect thing. I've sent now roughly a dozen miniatures to four different painters, all of them in Europe. All of them, in some regards, students or friends of Kirill Kenev, all with unique styles to paint. And this, for me, is an aspect of catharsis, firstly, to get this metal actually painted. In parallel to this, I have a bunch of First and Second World War miniatures that I'm getting painted through a group in San Diego, if they do a reasonable job on the initial commissions, which I think they probably will, just to clean out a bunch of stuff. And then... For me, it's all about closure. So when I got my miniatures painted in the UK, that was it. I haven't had miniatures painted for 15 years since then. I haven't felt the need. So these things are just about closure and also getting rid of stuff. Have you ever, have you ever paid to have miniatures painted? Or let's talk about your miniature painting experience to start off with. How many of your miniatures are painted? Do you buy them pre-painted? What's your experience with painting? The first miniature I ever painted was the first miniature I ever owned. That was a set of British red coats from the American Revolutionary days and one American dressed like a civilian who was Nathan Hale, who had been an American spy who the British had caught, I think, sneaking information out of occupied New York City and they shot him at some crossroads somewhere. And his final words were, my only regret is I have but one life to give in defense of my country. That's and a I had to do very it. specific miniature. I oh, so this was a, for a school project. This was for a school project. Interesting. I, I did a book report and I had to create a miniature scene from the biography I read and we had to read biographies of famous Americans. So, uh, I was randomly assigned Nathan Hale and, uh, this was it. Uh, so I had to, uh, model, well, I had to model a scene from his life. And then I went to a miniature store and said, well, <laughs> what can I find? Wow. And it was pretty easy to find the part of his life where he got shot by, uh, Firing squad. You know, military troops uh, by yes. firing squad. Uh, that was clearly the easiest thing to model. I could find a tree. I could find a gravel path, uh, which I made with masking tape and then put down grass and then pulled the masking tape up and put down gravel, uh, tiny, tiny gravel. And yeah, and then the red coats were off the shelf red coats. I don't mm. think I painted them very well. I think I was seven. Um, cool. And that whole thing was inside of a cookie box, like a tin that had mm-hmm. had Christmas cookies in it. And then um, the cookies got eaten, and we put the, the whole little world inside of there. Very cool. So uh, in terms of that time period, did you continue to collect, or that was a once-off thing? I think after that, almost all of my miniature purchases were, were role-playing game-related I think maybe right before I started playing Dungeons and Dragons, I had a friend who had a Warhammer 40k Space Marine army, mm. uh, white armor, uh, with black trim. So I don't know if that narrows it down. Uh, there were skulls on the shoulder. That definitely doesn't narrow it down. No. <laughs> the economy of my childhood was not really one where my parents had any interest at all in funding, helping to fund or subsidize or 
even like get money towards that I had earned in some independent way, expensive space Marines. So, so uh, I ended up, my miniature collection grew, I think by buying a lot of Warhammer related miniatures, because many of them were miniatures that blended the fantastical with the science fictional and had both organic and, and, um, cybernetic elements to them. Yes. Uh, and so a lot of those were Warhammer 40k miniatures. But yeah, certainly the collection grew piece by piece. Have you even maintained the original set of miniatures or you've maintained some of this collection? Uh, I think all of it. Uh, I think that it, it's always been kind of small up until I think all of the miniatures fit in one toolbox sized. Uh, it's not for, it's flatter than a toolbox. It, you would put like Fishing nails tackle. in it. Yeah, the fishing, fishing tackle, tackle boxes. Box. Yeah. Okay, so it's it's one of the flat fishing tackle boxes uh, that's maybe fifteen inches by thirteen inches, mm-hmm. uh, and it's got a built-in handle, so it fit inside of one of those for quite some time. I think grew beyond the bounds of that for a couple of years into random other boxes, and uh, at some point in the last year or two, I just went to Harbor Freight and bought like four fishing tackle boxes that all matched each other and moved them all in. So it's about four boxes big and I'm not totally sure how it grew that big, but in high school it was definitely just one. Yeah. The nature, the archetype of the fishing tackle box, I can't remember. Connor and I also have the benefit of going to Gator Games, which I think is one of the better, if not one of the best, if not the best, I do like Games of Berkeley. I do like the Oakland Game Store, which also has a outlet in Santa Rosa. But the one in Santa Rosa, when I last went there, was it's a huge store. It's a long store. It's pretty threadbare now. Legends Comics and Games, their Santa Cruz brunch, I think, is still open. The one in Santa Clara, I really don't like, and I've had a falling out with the guy that runs it. But Gator Games, for me, my wife periodically goes down to Southern California. My wife and I share a car. When she goes down to Southern California, I will get a train to San Mateo just to go to Gator Games. It is a game store which is relatively small. It's absolutely packed to the rafters, quite literally. And I had the opportunity of going there with Connor, what, eight months ago now. Was that your local game store when you were growing up? Uh, It was there, and it was Gamescape, which was on the El Camino south of Palo Alto, but Mm. north of... San Jose. Yes, certainly. So, somewhere in that four or five cities. And Gamescape had both role-playing games and a large miniature selection uh, and a Warhammer selection and collectible card games. Uh, I remember they were selling a lot of the White Wolf collectible card Mm. games when I was there. So, the, the Werewolf collectible card game and I guess there were some other ones. And Gator Games was the the sort of backup store. <laughs> Gamescape is what the Oakland store and the Santa Rosa store are. The Oakland store is still an amazing store, although I haven't been back for about a year and a bit. They have a large secondhand market, which I really love in game stores, and unfortunately Gator... Well, Gator kind of has a secondhand market. They're just kind of picky about what they put in it. But anyway, I had the opportunity of spending some quality time in Gator with you. I didn't buy a fishing tackle box set. I bought actually a KR multi case, which is my preferred miniature box style. It's a alum well, they make a variety including cardboard, but the aluminum kind of suitcase style cases with relatively uh, light foam and spacing where you can just pack it out with you know, tens, if not, in some cases, hundreds of miniatures. And that is my primary, that's my preference, basically. If I look over my miniature corner, which unfortunately is not a corner, but actually a good portion of this room, a majority of them are the KR multi-cases that I like. I also have soft cases. Amazon has a case, which for folks listening and familiar with season one, it's the stuff that I sent Brandon his figures in. And, um, Obviously, there are the Games Workshop cases as well. I've got half a dozen of those. And they're the only ones that I had. Actually, no, I had... When did I get the KR cases? I got the KR cases in Vegas, actually. So I only had Games Workshop figure cases in the UK, and I shipped all my figures to the US in Games Workshop cases as part of our main lot. But the Fishing Tackle Box, no shame 
in these style boxes. In fact, when I passed on the game's figures to the friend's or co-worker's son, I actually provided him... But now these are fishing tackle boxes with foam inserts. They're not standard fishing tackle boxes. In terms of your... So you mentioned you've got a blend of like some Warhammer. You've got some Warhammer 40k... But you also have a lot of the Wizards of the Coast miniatures, right? Yeah, I have... Uh, uh, Wizards of the Coast has a weird relationship with, with creating miniatures. Uh, so the first ones that I remember uh, that were from them were related to Chainmail, which at mm. that point was Wizards of the Coast's... It was Chainmail from the early 2000s, so it was the third edition era mm. uh and at that point wizards released a miniatures combat game based on a simplified version of the D 3.0 rules mm. called Chainmail, where every miniature came with a, a small card that described there was a statistics block that described that Certainly. creature and and their powers uh but described them in 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 uh technical battlefield terms so inches uh and things like that uh because it was meant to be played on a on a battle grid of some kind uh and i think that game ended up evolving into the dungeons and dragons miniatures game which was another second attempt at a spin-off miniatures game and then they started just making and that was when they first started using uh making pre-painted ones mm. and plastic ones and then i think it's it's moved on from there and they've had a couple iterations of pre-painted miniatures that you buy in randomized booster packs mm -hmm. uh which is a little crazy <laughs> and uh almost every game store of of any reputation that i've been to has has gone ahead and and taken you know, $400 worth of booster packs, opened all of them, sorted them, and then priced the miniatures out individually so that uh, no matter who buys what, the they, they make about as much as they would have made if they had sold the packs blind, mm. uh, which is the same thing that you, that people do with magic cards and, and uh, or that stores do with magic cards and, and other... Um, I think they always, they, always have an opening, like they always have an opening premium. I think to say that it's... I mean, it's a fair price, but there is always an opening premium associated with sorting, and it's not that they will... I mean, they will take rare miniatures and price them accordingly. If they're rare miniatures, they're going to price them as rare miniatures. But it is an interesting... The whole nature of the way Wizards of the Coast... So historically, if we're talking, like, early history, the Dungeons & Dragons miniature... This is TSR days... Was mm -hmm. held by... Two companies historically, there were Games Workshop or Citadel, which is Games Workshop's miniature creation wing. Citadel, uh, D and D miniatures. I own some of them still in the blisters. I owned them as a child as well, and they were interesting. You also have Roll Pather, which is an American company, I think, and they made, now they're independent, but they made a series of D and D miniatures, and there were some beautiful, like, box sets, I think. Historically, I might have owned one of those. I think I sold it relatively quickly. Where you would get, again, these are, these are cardboard boxes with foam inserts that had half a dozen to a dozen characters. Now, Kev Adams, who I've mentioned previously associated with Orcs, has also created, and I've got one of them. I actually broke it open and painted them for the D&D game. In fact, many of the character miniatures came from the Kev Adams I don't know what they're called. Uh, they're called Otterworld, I think, or something. And unfortunately, they're no longer being produced either. But you now can still buy, for those of us that were interested in this, you could buy metal miniatures of a really amazing quality that were half a dozen character classes, D&D &D character classes. There was a female set, which I've never been able to buy because they don't make them anymore. And then you typically need maybe two dozen different monsters to play an introductory D&D game. So you can still buy all of those in metal. For the D&D game that I ran, most of the miniatures that I bought for that were all what's historically called Black Tree Design, which now goes by a number of names. But they are metal miniatures of a probably late, mid to late 90s quality the stuff that wizards of the coast has done i've always found really curious they had a marvel like miniature series as well 
which I think is the actual machining that they ended up using, or at least visually for me, the Marvel collector miniatures very look very similar to me than the Wizards, the, the Wizards of the Coast miniatures. And I think the Marvel collector miniatures were licensed by Wizards of the Coast. There was some connection there. So a lot of the plastic miniatures, for a period of time at least, seem to come from that Marvel creation. But now, as you note, there is a new generation of D&D plastic. Yeah, so this latest generation of D&D plastic uh, miniatures is, I think, being produced by WizKids, which mm-hmm. is a, a second company, that unrelated, though they both have Wiz in the name. Uh, and so WizKids uh, made or has been making hero clicks, uh, which is, uh, I think Marvel and D and D. I don't know. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's the Marvel one, but, uh, and they have the, the, the little clickable bases that, uh, I guess, I guess all of the little statistics block is basically inside the base of each of so these guys. So they, that, that's how you play them is you, they, they each count down until they're dead and you make them fight. Uh, but yeah, so they've been printing plastic for a long time, uh, a decade at least. Uh, and so, what they're doing with the latest ones uh, is they are producing, uh, for Wizards of the Coast, they're producing role-playing, uh, the player character miniatures in sets of two, where each one is, uh, it's the same character, so mm-hmm. it'll be uh, female dwarven cleric. Uh, and uh, so it'll have a female dwarven cleric in sort of a, a resting and not fighting and mm-hmm. looking around sort of posture uh and then there will be a second miniature that is that same female dwarf and cleric uh but she's got her weapon drawn uh she has a a spell in her hand ready to go things are getting serious uh and and selling those as a pair and having someone paint their character in two different uh modes and have them switch uh seems like a really fascinating thing to do uh but they also sell monsters uh they also sell there's a line of dungeon accoutrements so treasure chests crates other stuff like that i think maybe a mimic i think mm-hmm. it's hard to it, it's hard to get someone to model a treasure chest for you without also having the model of a mimic certainly uh, yes. Yeah, but it's uh, they're exciting and and they're cheap. They're they're three or four bucks each, uh, or three or four bucks per like the set of two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you you can imagine actually being able to get you know thirty skeletons uh, when the skeletons are five bucks for a pack of six of them. You know. Yeah. I think that's always been the problem. I mean, truth be told, the Black Tree Design miniatures are that price, and they do go on sale. So. You can buy metal miniatures for maybe, you know, two fifty to three bucks a miniature, so it's not quite two. So I think certainly the rise of plastic that I've seen has never been I mean the argument's always associated with that the prices can be lower. I've never actually seen them getting that much lower. It's certainly in terms of shipping and in terms of transportation, plastic is clearly the way to go. And the reason that miniatures were so expensive for me in Australia was because literally they were shipping lead from England to Australia through shipping rates. And that was unbelievably expensive. And as a kid, when we bought miniatures, sometimes in bulk, we'd go into the bank and get a bank check in pounds and send them off to the UK. And then we'd wait six to eight weeks. And then we'd get a box with the miniatures that we collectively purchased together. So clearly plastic is the way to go for a lot of the stuff. It's just not where I'm at, unfortunately. I'm glad that the hobby has both. Mm. You know, uh, I'm glad that, that uh, there is... Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that it's an art form that has like a low road and a high road. And I'm glad that, that there are uh, people within the hobby who are interested in both the most amazing and also quite elaborate miniatures and also the people who just want to fill a table with them certainly certainly and i think returning to the original part of this topic one of the things that i love about miniatures is that they are really particularly for some of the futurism ones but a lot of the first and second world war ones that i own are throwbacks to plastic soldiers that i owned in particular matchbox plastic soldiers i got fred reed I've got a small fishing tackle box, literally, 
with a bunch of matchbox figures of their um, 1 to 70 second scale, so they're much smaller than miniatures, but painted. British commandos, painted. And the poses, in particular the poses of the standing rifleman, the kneeling rifleman, the prone rifleman, all these things, and as you say, advancing, resting, all these kind of things, flows through a lot of the metal miniatures, which I find really beautifully aesthetic of all these things in different poses for different kinds of troops and this kind of stuff, which is beautiful with orcs and a variety of other like non-humanoid creatures. You mentioned skeletons. The throwback to the original Matchbox figures or uh, there are a variety of different companies that sell them, but also plastic toy soldiers as you get still in various craft stores in this country very similar poses that you'll see through miniatures too so there are all these ebbs and flows all these throwbacks they remind me a lot of stop motion fantastical movies from the 60s and 70s Mm. uh, because they're frozen in those kinds of poses uh sort of forever and it's as if you you took a, a single still from um oh the greek movie i can't remember what it's called clash of the titans clash of the <laughs> titan uh and you know so so when i look at miniatures often i i think of the the stop motion sequences from clash of the titans and that kind of really amazing mechanical and analog kind of fantastical imaginative uh stuff certainly certainly well it's the so in video, there's a notion of the iframe, which is the most important frame of the video for the next two, sometimes ten seconds. And the notion is that you want to capture the most important aspect of movement for the next ten seconds. And I think that's exactly what the miniature is about. This is exactly what you're saying associated with stop motion as well. This is the most important pose for a length of time and i think as you say you're exactly right this comes from film fundamentally this comes from movies as well so interesting lead back i am catatonically exhausted currently yeah and you are recovering so i wanted to touch on one thing and then round this podcast out i have been to john muir woods today which was a trip i had been to john muir woods probably 18 years ago maybe maybe 17 years ago and i haven't been back since we took what is referred to as a moderate hike but actually turned out to be the hiker's hike of choice which got us a lot of hiking credibility when we got to the top of it but it was completely and utterly unexpected when we initially set out we missed the warning sign that recommended that you have fluid and a map and a bunch of other things. Thankfully, my wife had fluid and a map. I wasn't prepared for this thing. I thought, yeah, we'll walk for a couple of miles and walk back. It'll be fine. But in this process, we ended up going through so much really interesting environment and then ended up back on the like redwood canopy floor. My wife was taking photographs. I went and found a bench And my wife commented when she came around the corner that my head was steaming because the environment was cool and damp and we had just done what felt like four and a half miles worth of very interesting terrain hiking. According to her on the map as the crow flies, it was a little bit less than that. But yeah, this image of me almost like a beaker and the Muppets with the hair alight except this was steam just rising up through the canopy is a <laughs> vision that my wife has from this experience anyway so i love redwoods and when we moved here we looked at areas in the hills that have large amounts of redwoods i have some friends that still live up there and the experience my wife has a term associated with like bathing that you bathe in these environments and it's a means of cathartically removing yourself from the city life the hustle, a bustle, and just going back to nature. Now, unfortunately, in John Muir Woods, particularly through the flatlands, you're going to be encountering a lot of Bay Area people that are just wandering through. They're now charging and restricting the number of people that can go in at any given time. My experience today was unlike my experience of 17 years ago, primarily because we had this hike in the middle of it. But you grew up in this area, and you have a particular area that you 
used to go to to have these redwood experiences as well. Yeah, I have uh, some pretty singular memories of a park called Huddard Park, uh, which is uh, just outside of Woodside, uh, off of Woodside Road. And uh, so Huddard Park is is very much like John Muir, but uh, down in the peninsula, in that it is uh, these giant stands of redwood trees. Mm. Um, I guess we should probably describe what what it's like to be in a redwood grove to the audience, (laughs) because not everyone gets to do it, you know, because they're not really endemic to anywhere, right? It's just California. The house that I'm recording in is built with original redwood, and I need to point this out. The redwoods that you see now are not anything like the original redwoods. What we're actually seeing now are trees that have probably only been in existence for 50, if you're lucky, 80 years. So I always feel this, particularly as I sit in my house, that I've been incredibly lucky, as many people have that live in the Bay Area, to actually live in buildings that have been built with this timber, which has such amazing properties, particularly with regards to termites that um it is a unique kind of timber. The redwoods that you see are 100-plus feet tall now. Uh, in diameter, typically, they vary. But, I mean, the original redwoods were, some of them, 40-plus feet in diameter. They mm-hmm. were extraordinary trees. What we have left is a shadowing comparison of this because the whole area was completely deforested. And what we see in reforestation are trees that are in some areas, 200 plus feet high and diameter wise vary uh, greatly, but we don't have the, the old growth redwoods are sadly there are, are probably that you can see two dozen of these kind of trees that are left in this area, which is really sad. But even with these new growth redwoods that are, you know, in these areas, firstly, the temperature changes. So when you're up amongst them and the high points, which you get into in the hills, when you're kind of skirting them, it's typically 20 degrees warmer than when you're on the floor of the redwoods. They are so inspiring this is one of the frustrations that i have walking in densely like trekked areas which is one of the benefits actually of doing the hike component of this trip was that we got away from people for almost like, for a good portion of the time so they are just deadening the silence is mystical you do have birds you do have insects you do have these other kinds of things but you just get a sense that you're around a huge living organism because they're all interconnected through their roots and you are completely sublimely controlled by the fact that you are a tiny speck in this huge organic ecosystem which surrounds you. I've been into jungle areas, I've been into subtropical rainforests. They're impressive, don't get me wrong. But the redwoods just have a majesty to them which is so unique and also so special in terms of its importance. Now, within films, and this goes back to how young the redwoods are return of the jedi in star wars a good portion of endor was filmed in redwood forests not quite as dense as some of the redwoods that you see in parks like john muir but certainly that kind of aesthetic was captured in film there i rarely see it captured in film however do you know any other films that have redwood uh, the better parts of the recent uh, Planet of the Apes movies ah, yes, are, course, are, are, are explicitly set inside uh, the me. John Muir Woods uh, because that's where the apes seek refuge as they uh, flee the crumbling human civilization. And certainly they, they have a cathedral-like quality when you're inside that space because mm. as the redwoods grow, the branches that were once towards the canopy sort of break and fall off. Uh, and so you get these 40-foot diameter trunks or 20-foot or, or 10-foot uh, for these smaller trees, but still huge, huge trees, you know, the size of a house going up like this giant column. And you can see way off down past many more of these that you're in one big volume that the the roof the canopy is is really quite far up and then there aren't any branches between that and the forest floor and so it really is like you're inside of a cathedral that is rolling across the landscape uh and instead of having 
you know, human rectangular format. It's, it's more like a bunch of bubbles or something, you know, it's, it's natural. And then the forest floor is almost always a mixture of kind of redwood bark, this very spongy red bark and tons of ferns. Uh, were there ferns in your guys' trip today? That certainly. was definitely a Huddard Park thing was the ferns. Yeah, I think there were certain areas actually where there was a longish kind of grass as well. It was interesting in terms of the mix of vegetation. I will make one point. There were a number of felled redwoods, either in branch form or other things. The quality of the vegetation was broken quite frequently by largest trunks and other things, and certainly... Again, dealing with new growth redwoods, there is a phenomenon where lower kind of sapling-like redwoods can't compete and fall diagonally. So certainly there was a lot of diagonal vegetation as well, and a lot of felled redwoods too through the general walks. There are some cases where you actually have to duck under them um, in John Muir. And yeah, it was interesting in that regard too. The root structure is pretty impressive as we got higher as we walked up, we were there were a lot more exposed roots because that was basically what we were walking over. And, yeah, it is a very unique environment and certainly something that touches a number of people. When I posted, I posted just a couple of photos, including to the Attic Aficionados Facebook group, and a lot of the commentary came from people that don't actually live in the US but have been there in some trip at one stage. And I think it certainly leaves an impression. I mean, the eucalypts in Australia are pretty impressive, but and I've seen eucalypts grow like redwoods in California, which is very, very curious, but there are, there are properties of the soil that are just unique here for long, collimated trees, and, you know, redwoods obviously take the, the most advantage. Connor, it has been a pleasure as always. Hopefully you will recover in good health and, uh, you know, start sketching out thoughts associated with upcoming recordings, and I wanted to say, for folks listening in, we will also take topic suggestions and other ideas through the Facebook group or via Twitter or a variety of other forms. So if you'd like to hear us opine or discuss or controversial issues where maybe Connor and I disagree fundamentally, I think the metal versus plastic miniature thing, mm, I'm just appreciative of anyone appreciating the miniature arts. I can't really find a fault with that. So, but, oh, Agreed. But certainly to the listeners, it is as interactive as you want it to be. So please do consider submitting these. Connor, it's been a pleasure as always. I look yep. forward to talking to you soon. Take care. Well, have a good night.